I don't know what life is like for you, but I reckon emotions are one of the best things about life. I don't know what you think, but it's hard to imagine life without any joy or excitement, isn't it? It would just become really bland, sort of like living life in black and white instead of colour. Uh, and even sorrow and anger sort of make me feel alive. At least something matters, even if I don't like it. Now, I must admit for myself, I wasn't always like that. When I was 18, I think my goal in life was to be as unemotional as possible, to be unaffected by things outside me, just to be this stoic person who was completely self-contained. And I think I was stupid. What about Christianity and emotions? Is Christianity emotional? I think for some Christians, and you might have met people like this, it's all about emotions. If there's no excitement, if I don't get pumped up, then it feels like God's absent. It's about the subjective experiences. I think for other Christians, their experience of being a Christian is very cerebral. It's very objective. It's sort of out there. And if you've been with us over the last four weeks, as we look through the first four chapters of this book called Romans, written by Paul, an early Christian leader, the central idea we've been exploring and coming to grips with is justification. The picture comes from law courts, where the judge sits uh, to make judgments about people like you and me. And here the decision of the court, of the judge, of God himself, well, to be justified is to be declared innocent, to be acquitted of all charges. And that sounds very formal and sterile and unemotional, doesn't it? You may have been given the impression that Christianity is all about being merely cerebral. If you take up God's new deal, this new deal which is actually too good to turn down if you've got any sense with you, it feels merely an intellectual decision that may not affect your emotions at all. You just sort of make the decision and get on with life. Well, Romans chapter 5 will turn that upside down. Because here Paul starts to uh, explain the implications of being justified. And emotions come out front and centre and all the way through. You see it in verse 2 here. We've gained access to this grace and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, we all see glory. And it's the same word as verse 2, boast. We glory in our sufferings. And even at the end of the passage, verse 11, not only is this so, but we Boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's the same word he uses three times here. And it's a word that's actually a little bit hard to translate into English out of the original language. Sometimes it's translated boast, which sort of sounds wrong, doesn't it? Boasting, that feels arrogant. It's not that side of boasting. Or it's something you glory in, something that just thrills and excites you, something you rejoice in. I think probably in English, the closest word is the word exult, except we don't use it much. It's that feeling when... You know, when just a, a minute before the end of the footy game, they kick the winning goal. Now, pass, snap from the pocket, and they win. Can you remember when that happened? It was a while ago, I know, but do you remember when that used to happen? And, and you found yourself involuntarily standing on your feet, fist pumping. Well, it's that feeling. Or the feeling when you get into your exam that you're petrified about, and you open the exam paper and start reading it, and you realise that every question... You've got down pat. And if you could, you'd stand up and go, wouldn't you? Or maybe that feeling you get when you've climbed Bluff Knoll before dawn. And you're standing up on top and the sun rises and you wouldn't be anywhere else in the world. That's what this, this word conveys. It's very emotional, isn't it? Very, very positive. And Paul's saying, well, if you understand justification, that's the sort of emotional impact and effect 
it will have on you. There's a significant emotional aspect to being a Christian, even though it may feel to start with something cerebral and clinical. As we've seen, Paul is obsessed with justification. This verdict that he sees God making on the lives of every single person, me or you, either of justification or condemnation. And for God to justify someone, to say, he or she is okay with me, is a critical change. And he says again in this passage, as he said uh, in the last few chapters, it's done by Christ's blood through faith. The means of justification is not by innocence. God doesn't look in me and judge me by my performance. No, justification is only because of Jesus. We all deserve condemnation, God's rejection and anger. But God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. He took my sin and evil on himself. He took the punishment that I deserve. And so there's this sweet exchange. He gets my sin and condemnation. I get his goodness and acceptance. That's justification. And if Jesus has done it, not me, then I can't earn it. I can't contribute to it. It can only come to me by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus. All that's required of me or you is to trust Jesus and his death for us. And if we do, God says, that'll do. That does me fine. The verdict of justification is given. That's a little bit strange because you'd normally think justification is a verdict that would be given at the end of your life, wouldn't you? It's sort of wrong to do it now. Shouldn't God wait till, till you've you know, lived your whole life and he can reflect on the whole thing? Well, that's the old deal. But the new deal is, Jesus died for you, so now, today, the verdict of the end day can be brought back here, into the present. Today, you can be right with God. The verdict of the end already made. Now, that's a strange thing to have happen. It's sort of like getting your uni degree when you enrol. Or, uh, it's actually more like... Getting your uni degree when you've completely flunked out of uni. You know, you've failed so many times, the uni has said, we don't want to see you again. Get lost. You can't even re-enroll. And then the next day, in the mail, you get your degree. <laughs> that, that's what it's like. Now, if you've got that degree, I guess you could say it's just a piece of paper. I don't care. But stop and think that getting that degree will make all sorts of differences, won't it? And it'll probably take you a while to start to figure out and come to terms with what those differences would be. Well, the same with justification. And in this little section, Paul starts to spell out some of the implications of being justified. If that verdict has been made about your life, what difference does it make? And he says, firstly, it means that we have peace with God. Verse 1. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, peace with God is a, is a relational way of describing things, isn't it? Peace between people is not about your status or standing, a verdict... It's about a relationship restored. There was enmity. There was, we didn't get on with each other. And then we're reconciled and, and there's peace. Peace is friendship. See, this judge, he doesn't sort of dismiss us. He doesn't want to get rid of us. So he says, well, I'll let you off as long as I never see you again. No, this judge lets us off, justifies us, because he does want to see us again. He does want us around. Some of you may be familiar with that story Jesus tells about a father who has a couple of sons. And one of the sons, the younger son, says to his dad, I want my inheritance. That is, he basically tells his dad, I want you dead. I just want your stuff and I'm out of here. 
And he does. He takes it all. The dad gives it to him. And then a couple of years later, he comes to his senses and realises that his, the life he had with his dad was so much better than what he had independent. And he turns around sure that his dad won't be happy to see him. Unsure whether he'd even be accepted at all as a servant back in his father's house. And then as Jesus tells the story, the father sees the son from a distance. What does he do? You go back home and get the stick? No, he runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him and says, let's, let's throw a party. Well, that's peace. That's the sort of peace Jesus is talking about. When somebody's reckons, uh, 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 justified, God does it so that the relationship can be restored. A genuine friendship with God. Secondly, he talks about access. Verse 2, through whom, through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, access is the picture of a court, of a king, a prime minister, somebody like that. And everybody would love an audience with the king or the queen, but access is restricted, isn't it? To get access, what do you have to do? Well, probably you have to grovel. Grease a few palms, pay a bit of money here and there, and you might be able to uh, plead your case to the king. But imagine, imagine the king's son sees you outside and just grabs you and says, come with me. And he takes you straight into the throne room and says, Dad, I want to introduce Tim to you. Bypasses all the protocol, all the guards. Now, you might imagine someone challenging that and saying, come on, he's an outlaw. You can't talk to him. But Jesus says, I died for him. He's got every right to be here just as much as I have. Well, that's what he's talking about, access to God. Now, I suspect that Malcolm Turnbull wouldn't give me the the time of day if I wanted it. But the creator of the universe gives me his full attention. That's true now. While I'm standing here, it'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true next week and next year. And he invites me to advise him on how to run his universe. That's an incredible privilege to have, isn't it? It's access to God, the creator. Access so that he listens to me and to you. Which actually makes me much more influential than Malcolm Turnbull. Thirdly, he talks about the hope of glory. Verse 2 again, and we boast, we exult in the hope of glory, of the glory of God. Back in chapter 3, he said, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But now our hope is, our future expectation is that we'll be restored to the glory of God. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? The glory of God. What's he talking about? Well, the backstory takes us right back to the beginning of the Bible story. Creation. When God made this world, created the trees and the planets, the stars, the moon, the animals, he created humans to rule this world. We are part of the creation. We're like the animals in that way, but we're different. We're like God in some ways. We're made in his image. And God says to the first humans, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Now, the word subdue is a a fascinating idea, isn't it? it? It implies that God left the world a little bit wild, a little bit untamed, unfinished. Now, why would God do that? You could think maybe he's just tired, maybe he's exhausted, maybe he really wants to go on holidays and he couldn't be bothered. No, that's not the reason. The reason is he wanted to share some of his glory with us. 
The glory, the joy of, of, of putting your hand to doing something and being able to look, look at it afterwards, to stand back and say, isn't that brilliant? And I did it. He left space for us to do that. He gave us the responsibility and the privilege of ruling this world, of shaping it, of making a difference in this world and having that satisfaction of seeing the work of our hands come to fruition. And the Bible talks about that, as I mentioned, of God sharing his glory with us out of pure, unadulterated generosity. And Paul says that's our hope then, that that glory will be restored, that one day we'll have immortal physical bodies that can do, can make an impact on a, on a glorious new world and will be gloriously good from our hearts out, our characters, untainted by evil. I'm looking forward to the day when I no longer have to be careful about what I do because I'm, I'm genuinely nervous that I'm going to muck things up, that I'll tell a lie that will hurt people, that I'll respond in a way that will damage others. And, do you feel that? Wouldn't it be terrific to no longer feel that, that, that sort of fear of doing things wrong, but to be thoroughly good from the inside out? That's God sharing his glory with us as owners ruling with him. And that prospect for Paul fills him with this exalting. That's what's in store. That's what I'm going to become. But maybe you're worried that it's just wishful thinking, that you're going to miss out. Well, he addresses that in verses 9 and 10. He says, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we're God's enemies, we're reconciled through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying this hope won't be empty because God assures us that if we're justified now, we will be saved then. Now, there's, there's a few strands to this logic. Let me just point out one. He's saying if the verdict has already been given, God's already given the verdict on you that you're right with him. What can change that verdict between now and the day of judgment? Could God discover something that you've done that would make him change his mind? Well, no, because you're not justified by what you've done, but what Jesus did. And he sent Jesus to do it when he knew that about you. Could you do something between now and the day of judgment that would somehow blunt God's uh, justification and, and make him change his mind? Well, no, not if he justified me when I was an enemy of his. What can change it? No, a God who's loved me like that, that means my present justification assures me that God loves me with a deep, stunning love that will not change. And verses 5 to 8 describe that sort of love. He says, hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. As he says, we know God loves us now. And one way we know is this subjective way God pours love into our hearts by his spirit, flooded our hearts with his love. This subjective feeling of being loved by the creator of the universe. This almost personal assurance that God is for me wonderfully. But if you've only got the inner feeling, it's not enough when there are other conflicting feelings. You know, when life turns bad, that, that assurance that God loves me usually goes out the window, doesn't it? I feel like God's against me. We need more than the subjective. Pick it up in verse 6. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Now, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see, he's now talking about something objective, something out there, something that you can see and empirically explore, concrete and substantial. In the death of Jesus, God demonstrates, God proves his love for me and you. And it's clearly love, and it's clearly quite extreme love. See, how much love would it take for you to give somebody $10? Probably not much. That's starting to hurt a bit, isn't it? That were a million dollars. Your life. How much would you love someone if you gave your life for them? Well, that's what Jesus did for us. And who did he do it for? Did he do it for the nice people? Did he do it for those who were so impressive that you couldn't help but love them? Did he do it for the really lovable, cuddly people that you know, you're just attracted to? No, he did it for the ungodly. Those who suppressed the truth about him and said, I don't want you in my life at all. Just rack off, will you? The sinners, he says in verse 8, the outlaws. And verse 10, the enemies, hostile towards God. That's who he did it for. In verse 7, he, he, he makes an observation about life. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though it does happen occasionally, doesn't it? You hear stories of that, don't you? Of parents who give their life for their children. I remember reading a, a newspaper article about a, uh, a couple having their honeymoon on the Great Barrier Reef. They got caught in a cyclone. They were sailing in a, in a, in a yacht. Their yacht got smashed onto one of the reefs. They both found themselves in the water with just bits of flotsam around them. And they noticed uh, a couple of fins starting to circle them. They tried to get onto uh, some bits of wood that they had near them, but the bit of wood could only hold one of them. If they both got on, it just tipped over. And after a little while, as the fins got closer, the bloke said to his wife, you stay on the bit of wood, I'm going to swim. He was never seen again. She made it to an island not long after. That's how the story got in the newspaper. remember reading that and thinking, he must have loved her. Really loved her. But she was his wife. He'd chosen to love her. He was in love with her, I presume. But Jesus did it for his enemies. I've never heard a story like that. That's love, isn't it? Absolute, unconditional love for you. God is for you. So can you do anything that will blunt God's love for you? Can you do anything that would turn off God's love? Not if he loved you when you're an enemy. Not if he knew all about you and still sent his son to die for you. And Paul sees that all this has a huge impact on how we respond to suffering. In verse 3 he says, uh, We don't only boast glory in the hope of glory, but we glory, we exult even in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Suffering is one of those difficult, ambiguous things, isn't it? When you suffer, it's hard to know why you suffer. What's behind it? If you believe in a God, it's very tempting to think, this shows that God is against me. He wants to make me suffer. 
Sometimes people, when they suffer, think this must be a sign that I've slipped out of God's good books. I'm no longer justified. He's punishing me somehow. But if I'm sure that I'm justified permanently, if God is for me, and I know that because of the cross and that's unambiguous, then suffering can't be a sign that God's changed his mind. He's reversed his decision. He's now punishing me. It must be for some good purpose. And so Paul traces one path of the way in which suffering can be good. Not the only one, but it's, it's one. Because suffering produces perseverance, endurance, stickability. And perseverance is actually a necessary ingredient of real goodness and of achieving anything, isn't it? See, if you're only honest when it's easy, you're not really honest, are you? It's only when you're honest, when it's difficult to be honest, that you really are honest. Perseverance is stickability, still being good, still behaving in ways that are, are, are praiseworthy when it's difficult. I don't learn that when life is easy. And most things you can't learn any other way. Sorry, perseverance in anything you can't learn any other way. See, how do you learn perseverance in study? You've just got to study, don't you? You don't learn it watching television. You don't learn it by you know, putting $5 in your pocket and saying, I'm going to pay me to study. You only learn perseverance in study by studying and sticking at it when it's difficult. And that's true of anything worthwhile in life. God wants us to be people who persevere, who have endurance. It's such a great thing to have. Without it, you'll fluff everything, won't you? With it, you'll do much. And perseverance, he says, produces character. A tried, tested character. Someone with character. It's the difference between a, a raw recruit... And a veteran. The veteran, his character's been refined, it's been revealed by pressure. He knows that he can tackle things and succeed. And character, he says, produces hope. Confident expectation. If God is working this, even this for my good, this suffering, this difficulty, then he's sure to finish the job one day. Sufferings are not pleasant. He's not arguing that. He knows they're unpleasant. But he knows they help you in some significant ways. And he says, as it encourages you to hope, you know that hope won't disappoint you. It's not wishful thinking. You won't be exposed uh, as, as merely naive optimists. It's not a fantasy. God will deliver. So why is Paul so obsessed with justification? I suspect that for us, justification is not all that exciting. It doesn't really scratch where we're itching. Our cravings aren't being satisfied. It gives me so little sense of joy and wonder. But for Paul, it's sort of the opposite. He spent four chapters convincing us of the need for justification and explaining the wonderful, the mind-blowing way God justifies us. Because for him, justification is the foundation that everything else is built on. You might yawn. He's excited. It's sort of the connection that opens up everything else that's worthwhile having in life. You know, your phone. Your phone's pretty useless without a connection, isn't it? And it's the connection to the network that opens the door to everything that's on the network. Well, justification is like that. If you're not justified, you have no peace with God. You have no access to God. You have no hope. Justification is where it all starts. If you're justified... Through Jesus, what he's done, if you're trusting him, your status with God has changed. 
And that changes everything, says Paul, in a very personal way. Let me come at it from a slightly different angle. What do you need to live? Media thought might be, well, I need air to breathe, don't I? I need food to eat. But you need more than the physical stuff, don't you? What do you need to live a human life? Because humans aren't just bricks or trees or even animals. We're persons. What do we need to live as persons? Well, the psychologists tell us, I'm not sure they're always right, but they tell us a couple of things. They tell us you need love. There's been situations where babies have grown up completely devoid of any touch and affection from other human beings. And it just devastates them. Psychologically, it, 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 it kills them. And physically, it sometimes kills them. Love. We also need hope, I think. There's a very well-known story, you might not have heard it, but of a, a, a guy called uh, Maltman, Jorgen Maltman. He was taken captive during the Second World War and spent five years in a British internment camp in Britain. He was a German soldier. He went into that camp as an atheist. And as he spent the five years in the camp, he saw people without hope just shriveling. If there was nothing to live for, no hope that things might change, they just couldn't maintain life. They couldn't be bothered. They fell into deep depression. The only people who seemed to survive in that sort of environment were people who had genuine hope. Now, it wasn't the only reason he became a Christian, but it was one of the reasons he became a Christian. He saw that God offered hope. Some of you might be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, some of you have. Maslow's a psychologist. Now, I don't go all the way with what he says, but he, he, he rightly, I think, observes that once the physiological needs are met, uh, food and that sort of stuff, those more personal psychological needs start to push their way through. We do need affection. We need love, a sense of belonging. We do need some sense that we're significant, that, that we matter, that we make a difference in the world. And justification makes those sort of differences. There's so much more than justification. Justification proves we're loved by God with the sort of love that we long for, we ache for. Unconditional love that you won't lose, even if you do stuff up. Unreserved love that will never run out. And isn't love what we spend so much energy trying to get? So much anxiety, worry that we won't get it, that people won't like us, that our parents won't approve of us. It, it, it dominates our life in so many ways. The clothes we wear, the way we behave, the way we try and make friends. We want the acceptance and approval. We want their affection. And so we do whatever it takes, even faking, whatever it might be, to feel that sense of love, of security. And this says, you are loved. Your deepest longing and need for love. The thing that creates all your anxieties, well, it, all that's flooded with the acceptance of God. Not just for the moment, but forever. And hope. Hope of the glory of God. Now, it may be hard to imagine what that's actually going to be like. It is a difficulty for us, I think. It's worth doing some thinking about and trying to get our heads around what God is promising. But that is your destiny if you're justified. Hey, what's your worst fear in life? That you flunk uni, never get a job, 
or maybe now you pass uni and still can't get a job, left on the unemployment peak, maybe in the end to live out on the streets? Is it to remain single all your life, lonely, all those unfulfilled desires? Is it getting sick, left paralysed, disabled for the rest of your life, thrown on the rubbish tip by our world? But your destiny forever is glory. That doesn't disqualify you. They might treat you with contempt, but that's not the end. You will be resurrected. You'll become a part owner of the redeemed creation. You'll experience all the joy of intimacy and the love of Jesus. So then you really will be significant. Your accomplishments will last. And significance, even now, you have access to God to bring your request to him, to advise him on what to do about Syria and UWA and your family and your friends. And he hears you. God incorporates those into his plans and the way he works things out. Yes, real significance. See, those personal needs and desires aren't wrong. They're they're real. They're created by God. They're actually good things. Don't suppress them and pretend you don't have them. Because without them, there is no emotional experience in life at all. There's only joy in life because you have desires and some sense of satisfaction and hope. And in justification, your desires are satisfied by God now and in the future. And there's incredible liberty in that. You're liberated from that being driven to get them now, to use others to feel good about yourself. The need to be loved, to be important. You don't have to go and get that and force others to give it to you. Because God has given it to you. And the result is emotional. Rejoicing, exulting, boasting. We boast in the hope of glory. We even boast in our sufferings. You may not feel like that every day. But if you're a Christian, that happens occasionally, doesn't it? There's times when you realise just how much... Jesus loved you. He gave his life for you. Those times when suffering, you see the good effects of it and you think, Lord, thank you. I'm glad I did those exams. I'm glad I went through that difficult period because I can see what good you've you've brought out of it. It may not feel like that every day, but it affects every day that I do feel it sometimes. But the end point is actually verse 11. It's not just we boast in what God gives us. The end result of being Christian, of being justified, is that we boast in God himself. Not in what I have, but in the person who gave it. Have you ever seen that tragic thing that happens especially with children? When maybe it's their birthday or something and someone gives them an incredible present. And they get so obsessed with the present, they don't even say thank you to the person who gave it to them. Have you ever seen that? And you think something has gone wrong, hasn't it? Because the present, the gift, is an expression of love, is an expression of relationship, of, of, of I'm, I'm for you. And the child just ignores the person and just gets totally absorbed in the gift. Well, I hope you've grown out of that. I hope. I hope you're mature enough to realise the gift is actually much more about the giver than the gift itself. That you rejoice and exult in their love for you as you experience and enjoy the gift. And that's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian, you'll end up exulting, emotionally moved by God himself. 
And what a radical change that is from where we started back in chapter 1. Our normal human reaction to God is to suppress the truth because we want to do our own thing. To think that God is some sort of killjoy who's just going to wreck my life. I, I want him out of here. He's just some authority policeman. But justified. We're now exulting, rejoicing, boasting, fist pumping in God himself. That's the change that justification brings.